Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 95, being recorded on Thursday, July 27th. 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, I'm, uh, I haven't been uh, traveling a lot lately, uh, but I think you have been zipping all around. You've, you've kind of been pinging around the coast. Uh, update listeners on your mini travels. Yeah, I have been bi-coastal this week, Scott. I spent most of the week in my, um, ancestral hometown of San Diego, California. I was uh, there for NRF Tech, which is a great uh, smaller event that the NRF puts on every year. So that's um, originally designed for CTOs. It sort of expanded to uh, include the CMO Council and the Digital Council. So we had a, a fun couple of days of uh, networking and content there, and I got to lead a workshop, which was fun. Uh, at least for me, probably not for any of the attendees. Um, and then uh, flew to New York today uh, to do a workshop with a client tomorrow. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, just racking up the miles. Going to join the 8 Million Mile Club here soon. Uh, I'm happy to report I, I hope to never achieve 8 million miles, but I, I do uh, have quite a few. Uh, and I did get to visit... I got to check off another Amazon bookstore on my uh, list because there's one in University Town Center in San Diego. Cool. So give us a quick update on that. And then what was the buzz at NRF Tech? Anything uh, that listeners should know about? Uh, sure. So the the Amazon bookstore like is not very interesting. It was the second one they opened, um, and it's a smaller footprint. So it's basically sort of an equivalent set of offerings to the – the Seattle one, but, but, uh, in less space. So, you know, if you've been to another Amazon bookstore, you don't need to go out of your way to see this one. Uh, as I've mentioned before, the, the one in my hometown in Chicago appears to be the most advanced with the, with the coffee shop and uh, a broader assortment of products than any of the other, which is sort of interesting. Did you try to return a random Amazon product like you're, uh, like you frequently do? I, uh, because I was traveling for eight days in a, a two day overnight bag, I did not have room to bring any, um, uh, test returns with me. Bummer. Yeah. That's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> um, but the internet tech was good. There was a, a lot of interesting speakers. Uh, I definitely would say the theme of the show was preparing for the future and particularly, um, overcoming risk aversion and not being afraid to fail and failing faster was sort of a, a recurring theme throughout the day. So kind of agility and, and how, how do some of these 50 to hundred year organizations crank up the, the speed? Exactly. And I, you know, I, I think um, sometimes explicitly stated and sometimes kind of just implied, but you know, obviously the, the boogeyman for most of these, these folks is Amazon and, and they're particularly good at, moving fast and innovating despite the fact that they're a large 20 year old company. Um, and so, you know, I, I feel like the, the realization has hit a lot of folks that they have to find ways to be more, more agile and more forward leaning than, than, uh, 
the the um, innovator's dilemma would typically dictate. Mm-hmm. And then what was your talk on? Yeah, so I actually did a workshop on that theme. So I um, uh, presented sort of seven trends that I, I felt were sort of exponential growth trends in the industry that would likely affect all of the the attendees' businesses. And then uh, I gave them some brainstorming tools that we use uh, to be more forward-looking and sort of divorce ourselves from some of the the legacy thinking. So I, I introduced them to a, a structure uh, that was designed by a guy named Eddie DeBono called Six Hat Thinking. And so we went through a, a Six Hat Thinking brainstorming exercise where, where uh, we fired everyone from their current companies and had them all work for a new grocery retailer trying to invent a new customer experience in the U.S. to compete with Amazon Whole Foods. Cool. We should do a deep dive on this, so don't say too much. Let's leave listeners just kind of guessing. My my big question is: Did you really wear six hats at a time? No. The uh, uh, when uh, if we do a talk on the thing, uh, what you learn is you only get to wear one hat at a time. That's that's uh-huh. the beauty of the the system. Ah, so we won't tell listeners why it's called six hats. So we'll leave that as as I'm sure they're on the edge of their seat right now. Cliffhanger. Boom. Well, we have a jam-packed show tonight, so let's jump into it. So the two big topics, uh, number one is earlier today, Amazon released their earnings for the second quarter, and we're going to have a hot take on that. And then uh, we have listener questions. It's been quite a while since we did listener questions. We put the call out, and I'm excited to report. We we have a lot of listener questions. I'm not sure we're going to be able to get to them. So let's kick it off with Amazon News, which is our hot take on earnings. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Yeah, so today um, Amazon came out with their Q2 earnings. They're usually one of the later companies to report in our world. So we've already heard from eBay, uh, already heard from Google and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, just to kind of summarize those guys, eBay was steady as she goes. Google uh, did did relatively well. Uh, the stock was off a little bit. Um, they paid clicks were up, but they faced some monetization challenges that that you know people are kind of scratching their head about. Uh, a lot of people worry maybe they're just getting a lot of clicks from YouTube that aren't monetizing very well. Uh, a lot of concerns over mobile, uh, and then let's see, Facebook crushed earnings on uh, every measurable kind of thing. They hit some new all time highs. Twitter's results were kind of meh. You know they're really struggling to add new users. So that was kind of the setup. It was kind of you know mixed bag coming into Amazon. Um, so let's go through that. So the top line, kind of looking at revenue, uh, came in at $38 billion, and that topped Wall Street's expectations uh, pretty handily and represents 26% year-over-year growth. Uh, and just to remind listeners, e-commerce is growing at 15%, and here you have Amazon just kind of, you know, pretty easily doubling that. Uh, another thing uh, that I always have to remind myself with this quarter is it does not include Prime Day. So Prime Day will actually fall into the Q3 results. So, uh, you know, so this is, this is pretty nice. That represents a bit of an acceleration kind of from last quarter. So, you know, Amazon, what, what amazes me is they seem to defy the rule of large numbers, and, and we'll kind of talk a lot about why in a minute. But you know, to be thirty-eight billion and still posting these kinds of growth numbers is is 
pretty impressive. Um, as you peel the onion on the revenue side, North America revenue was the root cause of the reacceleration, uh, and that grew 27%. Um, there were some concerns about the cloud computing, which is AWS, because uh, Microsoft had reported a strong quarter there. AWS has been lowering their prices as they kind of compete out in the world with, with kind of some of the commodity storage and things. Um, and AWS topped expectations, so people were excited about that. International had some currency headwinds, um, but when you take those out, it also had a nice showing. Um, the things I watch closely are some of the non-GAAP measures. So third-party seller services, which is its own re revenue line item now, um, grew 40%. Uh, I should say a little footnote. For those of you that have followed my Amazon analysis for a while, they used to break out media, EGM, and other, and they've stopped doing that, unfortunately. So I can no longer kind of see how that EGM piece is doing. Um, that's always kind of one of the things I, I really enjoyed. I do think this third-party seller service metric now is probably a proxy for that because most third-party sellers are in EGM. So that grew 40%. So again, you know, almost three times the pace of e-commerce, which is pretty amazing. Um, third party as a percentage of units hit a new high watermark of 51%. That's the highest that's ever been. So the third party marketplace, uh, I know we have a lot of listeners that are either brands that do hybrid or uh, there are third party sellers, kind of more retailers, uh, very healthy growth there. Um, the uh, Another new segment that Amazon introduced this year in the first quarter that we're now starting to see some trends on is called retail subscription services. And that's essentially revenue from Prime. And that grew 53%, which, uh, you know, the Wall Street notes will come out tomorrow. I think we're going to see people, again, this is before Prime Day, which I think had, you know, they said record signups. I think we're going to see people nudge up their number of Prime subscribers based on this. I think, I think. I think Wall Street may have underestimated how many Prime subscribers kind of added in the quarter. So so that'll be interesting to watch, and we'll report on that. Um, another area I look at is paid unit growth. So this is uh, just a kind of a measure of volume. That was up 27% year over year. And that's its highest level since Q3 of 16. So, so it's really interesting reacceleration at Amazon going on. Uh, and that's, you know, I think if you kind of uh, – you know, think about how Wall Street thinks about uh, that was all super positive. The one thing that kind of freaked Wall Street out a little bit, and, and this happens every cycle with Amazon, is they start to show some profit, then they reinvest, and then uh, a certain set of investors freak out about that. Um, so that's on the bottom line on the expense side. So Wall Street was looking for just over a billion dollar in in gap profit, uh, and it actually came out to be six hundred million, so kind of half of what folks were looking for. Earnings per share that translates into earnings per share of forty cents. Wall Street was expecting like a buck forty. So you'll see these headlines, you know that. Amazon misses bottom line by, you know, 77% and that kind of thing. Um, that's certainly true, but, uh, you know, when you, when you beat revenue and miss on earnings, it usually kind of implies some level of investment inside of there. And, um, we'll see that, uh, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and then the other thing we, you know, uh, you know, being public is very much a "what have you done for me lately" kind of thing. It's really maybe twenty percent about the quarter they're reporting, eighty percent about the next quarter and what they're talking about. So, uh, Amazon updated their guidance for Q3, and they projected revenues uh, between thirty-nine and about forty-two billion, which implies a, a, a bracket of twenty to twenty-eight percent year-over-year growth, twenty-four percent at the midpoint. Uh, Amazon has a pretty good history at kind of beating that, just like they did this quarter, or coming in right 
right at the top of that guidance. So that that was a kind of that exceeded Wall Street's kind of previous thinking about Q3, uh, but where they did not exceed or they kind of actually missed where Wall Street was thinking is when they projected the bottom line into next quarter. Uh, Wall Street was thinking about $950 million, um, and Amazon said, no, it's going to be a range of minus $400 million to $300 million. So this is going to raise those questions you and I hear a lot about. You know, Amazon's not profitable. It's not fair. Um, we just have to kind of wait for them to uh, Wall Street to wake up. Um, and you know, again, the, the stock after hours was down thirty or forty dollars, which feels like a lot. But you have to remember, Amazon is in the thousand dollar stock club, so that's only a couple points. Um, and I think what we'll see tomorrow, it'll be interesting. You know, uh, uh, it's hard to guess how Wall Street will react, but I, I think we'll actually see. The set of investors that care about growth and market share will, will kind of uh, overcome the investors that are focused on profitability. Um, last point on profitability, uh, Amazon really does not optimize for any of those things I just talked about. They've optimized for revenue growth and market share and then cash flow. Uh, and what happens is, uh, you know, all these accounting rules kind of, you know, uh, bend that as you report these things. So just to kind of give you some numbers, for the quarter, Amazon had $17.8 billion of operating cash flow, uh, and then $8.2 billion of that goes to property, equipment, and R&D. Um, so that's kind of, you know, so what's happening here is, the way I think about it is, if Amazon were to stop investing for the future, and uh, so uh, let's just kind of play that out, uh, they wouldn't be making these kinds of investments, and you would have seen, you know, a big chunk of the 17 billion flow to the bottom line. But what they're doing is they're investing in R and D they're building fulfillment centers and they're building data centers. Those, those are kind of the three biggest legs of investment. Um, so for example, another 4 billion went to pay for leases. So that's fulfillment centers. Uh, and then they invested another 4 billion in new leases and equipment. So, um, so, you know, uh, the losses that you see, I, you know, the way I would argue it, uh, and I think a retailer should think about this. Wall Street, it's kind of you know they'll think however they think. Uh, the, these losses actually are not from the current business. It's kind of as if uh, you know they're they're making you know, an investment for and at these levels, you know, think about the levels I just talked about. That's the level they're investing in. So, so pretty crazy levels of investment. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know, I I tend to think of it pretty simply if they if their profits were going down because their cost of goods were going up or some some operating expense that was directly related to their sales this quarter were were dramatically going up like shipping went way up as a percentage of sales or something like that like then that would be indicative of a problem in their business model but when their their profit isn't high because they're investing in things that are likely to have a much higher future value like capacity or subscribers um like that that's a that that's a whole different equation in my mind yeah absolutely and, and to that point um I didn't talk about it but gross margins were were you know were about have been relatively the same for the last year so you know the cost of goods are pretty are very stable um and then um, this is kind of like in the weeds, so I'll, I'll just kind of leave it as something if listeners are interested. Uh, Amazon does report kind of segments, uh, and then that gives you a little bit better view of how profitable is each business unit if you strip some of this investment out. And they call it um, CSOI, which I think stands for 
uh, I know it's segment operating income. I forget what the C is for, um, but they kind of report on retail, AWS, and, and that customer segment operating income. I think it is. So that's a really interesting metric if you if you're if you want to get super geeky on this stuff, and you have to really dig into their SEC documents, their Q and, and their Ks to kind of get that. Um, but it is a uh, consolidated segment operating income. I think it is. Uh, so look for CSOI, and um, I think. I always find that is a really interesting view that strips out a lot of the things like, you know, um, RSUs and non-cash pieces and a lot of the accounting stuff that kind of gives you a hard, makes it hard to see what's going on inside of there. Yeah, I'm, I still run into it all the time that, you know, I hear from, from, uh, particularly from retailers, but, you know, others that, uh, oh man, Amazon is good at growing revenue, but they, but they're not profitable. Uh, and of course that's just factually untrue and, it was even untrue this quarter, even though it was a, a somewhat down quarter versus Wall Street expectations. Um, and then the one I hear even more commonly is uh, only AWS is profitable. So were you to take out AWS, they they wouldn't be a viable business. Yeah, and the CSOI actually proves that wrong. So it, it does show AWS is profitable, but it also talks about um, now it combines retail and 3P, and it, it I believe it does a um, domestic, non-domestic, and both of those domestics profitable, internationals losing a little bit, um, but you can see it's on a path to get there, and it's kind of been chewing away at it over time. So yeah, you know that that's a uh, those are just kind of factually wrong. So uh, you know, I guess, and you know, I think. Amazon secretly loves it when people think that because they, they don't, you know, they, that is not true. And they, they love misinformation kind of things like that, that people are not watching the right part of the, the ball here to, to keep up with it. One, um, one thing that's happened and we, 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 called it here on the Jason Scott show as the stock has kind of held over a thousand dollars. It's kind of in the thousand, ten thousand, twenty dollar range. Um, some other things have happened out there and with Berkshire Hathaway and Microsoft stock and whatnot. Uh, and the end result is by, uh, at least I've read it in two sources now, CNBC and fortune. Uh, Bezos is the most rich person uh, in, I think the world at $90 billion. So, so congrats, Jeff. Um, we know you're a big listener. So, big pat on the back for that. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, you know, congratulations. Pour yourself a drink with that top shelf, uh, uh, beverage of your choice. Boom. Get a diet Coke. Go crazy. Exactly. Although I do think Scott, I actually read, uh, that, that he hit that peak, um, based on the stock having a nice little uptick, uh, before the earnings were announced because the, the, uh, anticipation was that it was going to be a good quarter. And then I think after the announcement, the the stock actually uh, corrected a little bit, and I think you might have slipped back under Bill Gates for the time being. Yeah, I think it's at like ten twenty, ten twenty five, somewhere in there. So yep. I'm sure he probably doesn't care. What's another? No, I think if he yet. if he really cared, he would have skipped a, a year of uh, space exploration, and he'd be there. Yep. Cool. So that's uh, our hot take on Amazon's earnings for Q two, and and you know the way I would summarize it is. I think it was really strong and they're just pouring more money into investment and they're very profitable, lots of free cash flow that they are just spending as rapidly as they can into things that I think are, you know, pretty conservative that are going to pay off for them. Like another fulfillment center, Prime Now, launching in Australia, launching in Singapore, all these things are are kind of no brainers. So, um that is Amazon news. And now it is time for 
Listener questions. Questioner questions. Questioner questions. Cool. So first wanted to thank uh, all our listeners. Um, most of these come from our Facebook page. So as a reminder, if you just go to Facebook and search for Jason and Scott show, you will be taken there. Uh, or if you go to Jason and Scott, uh, dot com, uh, we have links to the Facebook page there and it's Scott with one T. So our first question, Jason, uh, comes from Kiri Masters. So so I'll also say a blanket statement of I apologize if I say, uh, Jason, or I, I say your name's wrong. <laughs> so Kiri says, I'd love to hear Jason Scott talk about their global e-commerce outlook. Amazon in particular seems keen to expand aggressively in international markets. Does the growth opportunities match the regulatory operational complexity for brands? Interested on your take. Yeah, so that that's a great question, Kiri. Like. At, at a high level, like I, you know, I think certainly we're all bullish about international e-commerce growth. So just kind of to to level set, uh, this is a milestone year in 2017. Globally, e-commerce will surpass 10 percent of all retail sales across the globe. So um, we've kind of hit that inflection point worldwide. And global e-commerce growth is about 23 percent. So you know, Scott mentioned earlier. Uh, we're in one of the more developed markets here in North America, and it's about 15%. So so the worldwide growth prospects are certainly higher. Um, but your, your question sort of implies uh, the real trick to all of this is, you know, in those markets where there is considerable growth, um, is it cost-effective to seek that growth, uh, either because of the the individual complexities of those markets because of language and logistics and, and those sorts of things. And, and particularly is the growth opportunity constrained, uh, because of regulatory issues. Right. And so, you know, that's the, the sort of equation you have to apply. Um, but certainly I think the, the conventional wisdom is, you know, the, the super exciting market for most, uh, folks at the moment is India. Um, and, you know, to kind of put that in perspective, uh, in North America, about 75% of all um, consumers that have access to the internet are online shoppers. In fact, I think it's like 76%. Um, in Asia, uh, it's closer to to uh, 50 or 60% um, of, of all users um, that have internet access are shopping online. But where it gets interesting is... In North America, the overwhelming majority of all, all users have Internet access. In Asia, only about half of all users have Internet access. So when you look at the percentage of the total population that are shopping online, um, you know, in, in North America, we're about 65 percent. And in Asia, we're at 25 percent. Um, so India, in particular, is even a little lower than that and has a huge population. So you you have a huge population. You have an emerging middle class um, and you have very low penetration at the moment. So th- those are certainly, you know, all the the favorable characteristics that have uh, caused a lot of big international companies to come in and make big bets in in India, which is why it's kind of the, the global e-commerce battleground right now. Um, and as you correctly pointed out, there are some challenging logistics and regulatory environment um, that make it difficult for, for businesses, Amazon in particular, to sort of completely replicate their their North American model in India. So so that's that's the barrier. Yeah, and um so I'll specifically kind of talk to Amazon a little bit. I'm not an expert on regulatory issues. Um but you know so so Amazon's growth strategy has been 
uh, it's been interesting. So they started in the U.S. and then they did Europe, and uh, then they the the only time Amazon has not kind of really focused and become number one is China. And um, you know, if anything in China, I think they're like number four or five, which is pretty interesting. Um, and I think they learned a lot from that experience. I think they um, they realized that. They have to really adapt to the local market and build a team and maybe acquire a company and just kind of be more nimble um, than they they had been. So so China was a real big learning and, and ever since then, uh, you know they have when they go in a market they go guns blazing. And to Jason's point, India seems to be this really interesting battleground right now between all the big global e commerce companies. So so Amazon got a bit of a late start because there was some. Some regulatory things uh, they had to cross over in India, uh, and they 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 could only open the third party marketplace. Are they Amazon still does not retail? So there's some kind of protectionist law that you can't a foreign company can't be a retailer in India. So um, so you had um, Flipkart and Snapdeal uh, as kind of the incumbents, local companies, uh, and then Amazon did enter and they started taking share. Then what's happened is Alibaba and eBay have each gone in and, and South SoftBank and some of these really big players have kind of bolstered those anti-Amazon companies. So Amazon is, is pretty publicly said they're going to spend billions of dollars in India. There's something like, uh, I track this pretty close, 15 to 20 fulfillment centers they're building just in India. So they're, they're, they're pretty much betting that the playbook of getting product close to consumers is going to be really important in India because it is a very large country. Uh, you know, um, you know, uh, what is it? 6 billion people in India. Is that right, Jason? Uh, yeah, I think that sounds about right. Uh, no, maybe like 3 billion, 3 billion. Yeah. Maybe China six. So, so you have a very populous country um, spread out, lots of cities, lots of different ways, not a really great courier system um, or delivery system, kind of like a FedEx, UPS, USPS. So I think Amazon is really investing in that. So, so that's been interesting to kind of watch. And, and they've, you know, they've been way more aggressive there than they did when they went to China. I think they, you know, when I read the tea leaves, I think they kind of regret not being more aggressive in China and, and really building that out better. And they got kind of beat by JD with a 1P model and Alibaba with their 3P model. Um, uh, as we kind of stick to Asia Pac, uh, there they so that's been where they've been investing probably for the last three years. So they haven't been uh, expanding much, but now we're starting to hear um, they're definitely opening Singapore uh, and then uh, Australia, and so it's interesting to see them kind of pick up those countries. Um, and then just as a reminder, uh, they did acquire a the top marketplace in the Middle East called Souk S O U Q. I think that was was that kind of announced Q four closed Q one. Jason, does that sound familiar? Yep, to you? exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's a pretty big marketplace. Now I think it was like two to five billion in GMV, which is pretty sizable. Uh, and that's going to pick up, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, um, Kuwait, some of the you know the Middle East countries there. Uh, and it's a lot like Mercado Libre, who we've had on the show, where it's kind of a family of little local marketplaces. It's not kind of a um, you know, a homogenous marketplace. It's kind of every country has its own rules and regulations and language and currency and couriers. So they kind of like have built that in each country in the Middle East. Uh, and then they, 
they do have some glue that kind of combines it together. So some cross-border trade kind of things, uh, a payment platform that I think is, is kind of similar across there uh, and uh, that kind of a thing. Um, so, so hopefully that gives you a flavor for where Amazon is. And then the last one I'll talk about is um, kind of South America. So, so Amazon, so South America for a long time was one of the fastest growing e-commerce markets. Um, you know, so you would have China. So Jason was talking about, Jason, did you say global at 23 or 25? Uh, 25. 25, yep. So then you used to see Brazil kind of listed as 35.40 and China kind of like maybe at 28.30. Uh, Brazil has come down pretty considerably because uh, just political unrest in the country. Um, you also have right next door-ish Venezuela has kind of hit the skids uh, due to some currency devaluation things going on there. Um, so a lot of the political and currency things in those South American countries have caused it to slow down. And I believe when we had Mercado Libre uh, on the show, they were talking about kind of 25 28% growth that they were seeing. So that used to be like the fastest grower, and I think China has kind of supplanted that. Do you, is that kind of what your data shows, Jason? Yeah, and I I would say like so, LATAM is kind of right in between Asia and North America in terms of um, digital shopper penetration. So there there is a lot of headroom there, but as you you rightly pointed out, it it's actually a lot more fragmented. So while you can kind of you know list one skew and and reach all of India, um, you know you your what you really need to do is list a you know a separate skew in in each country in Latin America or the Middle East, which make the uh, the logistics a lot more challenging. Yeah. And, um, I've never had the pleasure of meeting Carrie, but I, I see uh, from her LinkedIn that she, she helps brands sell on Amazon and other places. And, you know, when, when I talk to brands in the U S about this, um, it, it's interesting. So two years ago, plus they were, they were obsessed with China and like, what's our China strategy. And I'd say in the last 18 months that has cooled down and it's very much, What's my direct to consumer strategy? What's my Amazon US strategy? So, so I think, you know, I, I think that there's people have pulled back a lot on this kind of global international thing because they're feeling the heat in their home market. And this, this is US brands I'm talking about. Um, so, you know, for those brands that aren't concerned about that, you know, where, where we see a, a typical roadmap is let's say it's a US brand, they start in the US. Uh, the natural place to go is the UK because you don't typically have a language impediment there. Uh, it, it's a very kind of US feeling kind of a country, obviously. Um, and then you'll see some expansion into Europe, usually Germany and France uh, being kind of the next biggest e-commerce markets. Um, we have a lot of customers at Chavez that do really well in Australia. So Australia is kind of an easy box to tick off. It's English speaking and it's very friendly to imports. And um, there is a lot of infrastructure out there for supporting these countries. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the marketplace providers. So eBay has a really excellent program around this. So does Amazon uh, around global shipping. So they allow you to, uh, they'll take care of a lot of this operational kind of complexity you talk about where you can, uh, they have a crawl, walk, run metaphor. So, uh, the eBay brand program, for example, you start out, like let's say you're a U.S. company and you want to start selling into eBay Germany. Um, you can just kind of set a flag that says, I want my product to show up on eBay Germany. 
They'll actually translate it for you using a Google Translate. Consumers there can see it. They'll order it. And then you'll get an order that just ships to the U.S. and does a reshipping. Um, so that's that's nice because you can kind of test the waters without having to make huge investments. So that's the crawl part. Then is what, what we say to folks is as you see that volume tick up, it's not the best customer experience. So to really kind of go to that next level of customer experience, you need to start kind of shipping pallets over to the destination country and selling in more of a localized way. So that's the walk. And then run is when you, you know, you actually kind of maybe create a store footprint or or a fulfillment footprint, actually put bodies over there answering questions and that kind of thing. And that's the run. So we, we see that that model work really well for both small and medium-sized retailers as well as brands. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I think we'll see more and more of those kind of solutions uh, that, that come out to really help everyone kind of, you know, peel this cross-border trade piece and understand how you sell in these international markets. Yeah. And uh, I'll just add one one point since Scott and I both flunked geography. Uh China has has about like 1.35 billion people, and India has about 1.3 billion. So they're uh, they're the two most populous countries, and together they're almost three billion, which is yeah. Uh, There's like eight ahead. billion people on the planet. So. Exactly. There you go. Um, but so yeah, so I think that that that's a, a great answer to Carrie's question. Uh, the next question came from Josh Tarasov. Uh, and Josh wanted to know what our take is on Amazon's strategy behind buying products at full retail price from marketplace sellers. And uh, he he gave us a link to a, a CNBC article talking about this this new deal. Yeah, and this is kind of a, a little bit of a head scratcher. Uh, and as I've talked, so a lot of sellers are concerned about this because the way it was announced was just kind of like Amazon didn't really exactly say why. They just kind of said, hey, you know, you have some product in FBA and you may see Amazon.com as the buyer, which kind of people are like, what? What's that mean? Um, so what I think is happening here is, uh, you know, uh, again, these global shipping programs. L- let me kind of explain how eBay does this. So uh, a seller on eBay, if you don't opt out of it, they will actually opt you your default opted into that global shipping program I was talking about. And I think that's what Amazon's doing because what they want to do is when they, you know, I'll pick a new country, but this is true for any country, but when they roll into Australia, they want to show as broad assortment as possible. And uh, people in Australia love Western goods. So uh, this, this program will allow Amazon to say to people in Australia, look, we have, you know, 30 million products that, that are available to come into your country versus if they didn't do that, then maybe it's a million or 2 million that they would kind of host locally. So they would still have a million to 2 million local and then like another 28 million that are kind of cross-border trade that could be shipped from the U.S. Um, and that gives the that gives them this kind of, I would call it a backfill strategy. So it gives them this perception of lots of selection using cross-border trade as a backfill. Then what's, what we do, we do is, so imagine people start buying from the kind of in-country and the out-of-country product, they can very quickly learn from that uh, and say, oh, um, you know, these widgets are very popular in Australia. Let's kind of source them local or let's get pallets instead of eaches from the U.S. Uh, FBA. Uh, let's work with our brands and sellers to kind of say, hey, hey, Mr. Customer, your widgets are really popular in Australia. Let, let's kind of ramp this up. So that's what I believe is going on. Um, it's easy to kind of make it seem more nefarious. And uh, Jason, I'll turn it over to you for that part. 
Yeah, although I have to say I have a slightly different uh, understanding of what's happening. Um, so it'd be interesting. Maybe there's a little of both happening. Uh, but I've talked to a few 3P sellers, and um, it was less an automatic sort of program that you had to opt out of, and more it was an offer to opt into a one-time transaction. And so like what these sellers were told is, hey, you have an inventory uh uh, that you're selling 3P in North America, uh, we want to buy that inventory from you one time so that the, those listings will go away in North America because you'll no longer have the product to sell. And we're going to uh, take ownership of that inventory and sell it in another country. And so it was basically an offer uh, from Amazon to the seller to buy their inventory um, so that Amazon could resell it. And they were offering to buy it at, at full ask price from the seller. And how I interpreted that is uh, that they were looking to buy inventory to fill in brands or products that they were missing um, in some of the new markets that they're entering, like Australia, for example. Um, and if you if you think back to the early days of toys at Amazon, you remember they originally had a deal with Toys R Us. Toys R Us sort of famously pulled out of the deal right before holiday, which left Amazon in a bad spot. And Amazon actually sent a bunch of employees to go into retail stores, buy toys at full pop, uh, and put them on the marketplace so that the customers would be able to buy toys from Amazon. Um, and that really kicked off Amazon's foray into the toy space. Um, and so I look at this this 3P thing and I say, hey, Amazon's doing the same thing in new markets today, only they now have a convenience they didn't have back then. They don't have to walk in the stores and buy products. They have a bunch of sellers in their own ecosystems that already have products in their warehouses. So they just go to those guys and say, hey, do you want to sell me your inventory? If you do, great, I'll buy it. I'll sell it in another market. You know, in the long run, I'm certainly going to look to get a more efficient supply chain, but but as a way to get started, I, I will do that. Um, and there's nothing wrong or nefarious about doing that, but what what does happen is there are a few brands that 3P sellers are selling on the marketplace um, that do not want Amazon to be able to sell them. And, and most famously uh, these days, that would be Birkenstock. And so Birkenstock had a number of of authorized resellers that were selling their products on Amazon as 3P and they got letters from Amazon saying, hey, we'll buy your inventory and resell it. And uh, the Birkenstock CEO reacted very badly to that. Uh, he sent out a very dire letter saying, you know, any reseller that sells even one pair of shoes to Amazon to allow them to resell uh, will never sell Birkenstock again. And he 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 uh, he called it uh, Amazon's attempt at modern day piracy. And uh, and, you know, there was a pretty, pretty lengthy article about it in The Washington Post which is, I guess, somewhat ironic since it's paper owned by Jeff Bezos. And uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so our next question comes from Anoop Gosavi. Uh, and Anoop says, hey, guys, I love your show. So Anoop obviously has uh, impeccable taste. Uh, and uh, yeah, where was it? He says, we would love to see your take on when, if brands will be active on messaging platforms like Facebook Messenger, Kick, etc. cetera. Uh, is it a better channel than email? Is there any kind of signal in the noise? What are the opportunities risk? Thanks. Uh, great question, Anoop. Um, so it, it depends a little bit on the parameters of what you're asking. So when you, you, you know, uh, you, you mentioned 
brands being active, um, which is different than brands selling stuff on these platforms. Um, and you predominantly named platforms that are that are pretty prevalent in North America, um, although Kick Kick has a a, a more global footprint. Um, the answer varies widely depending on your geography. So obviously we talk a lot about WeChat um, in China being, you know, a super active platform for brands. Um, there are millions of sponsored accounts on on WeChat, um, Kakao Chat in uh, other parts of Asia like Korea is very popular and a ton of brands are, have a, are active on that. Uh, here in North America, although Messenger has a billion users, you know, we only see about 30,000 brands active on it right now, which like comparatively isn't a lot. Um, and that's really because the the platforms that are most prevalent in North America, like uh, Messenger, Snapchat, Instagram, uh, historically haven't had the best tools for brands. So um, the advertising tools have been kind of poor, and those are rapidly improving, which uh, makes me think we'll see brands using those platforms more as an advertising vehicle. And then the commerce tools are still very poor. And what we what we just painfully lack in North America is a universally uh, adopted digital wallet that enables, you know, friction free transaction on all these platforms. So when you look at what the big difference between WeChat is and Facebook Messenger, um, it's really that WeChat has 10 cents digital wallet built into it. And it makes it really easy to do a transaction right in the platform. Um, and we don't we don't have that uh, in Facebook Messenger today. Um, and so I do, I guess, you know, roll all that up. Um, we are starting to see brands, uh, use those platforms more, more particularly brands that are very visual and that are using like Snapchat and Instagram as a discovery platform. All the platforms are rolling out better advertising tools. They're rolling out better self-service tools and they're rolling out, uh, visual search tools, um, like the Pinterest lens feature, for example. And those all lend themselves to, uh, the platforms becoming better product discovery platforms, so I, I do think we're going to see progress, but I don't think we're going to see anything like uh, the adoption of WeChat in China unless and until um, we we get a, a universally accepted digital wallet. And yeah, I, I yeah. sorry, I would just add one more thing. Uh, these could all be good tools for your mix, but at the moment, none of them are going to give you an ROI, anything close to email, which is you know still a great bang for the buck. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And we talk about it a lot in our annual predictions. And, um, you know, I, I think everyone, every U.S. company wants that China model to work here. And and it just hasn't kind of taken. And I don't know if it's, even if we had a wallet, I'm just not sure consumer behavior is the same. So it's going to be really interesting to watch that play out. I wouldn't count it out yet uh, because, you know, you have some some really serious multi-billion dollar companies kind of playing this. Uh, it is interesting. Um kind of a dark horse in this is Amazon. So they've, uh, we mentioned this in some of our Amazon news last episode. Uh, so they've got, uh, you know, there's a lot of rumors that they have a messaging platform in the works. I have to believe that would, you know, if, if I think of what would Amazon do to make their messaging platform different, I think buying stuff would be the one thing. Uh, the other thing I would think would be kind of a unified echo and text chat kind of a, you know, um, kind of a hook, maybe pretty interesting. Uh, so let's kind of see what they come out with. And then also as a reminder, they came out with, um, you know, I always want to call it Sprinks, but it's Sparks, I guess, uh, is there, they're kind of Pinteresty, Instagrammy, product oriented kind of thing. So, so, you know, Amazon is the 
first e-commerce company to take a shot at this. So that could be a different take. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of headwinds there. Um, Another thing I would draw your attention to that's an interesting case study is um, the the retailer Everlane came out and they were they were kind of the poster child for this and they've been lockstep with Facebook. They integrated everything. They did the transaction notifications. They did the wallet. They've done all that stuff. Uh, and then in March of this year, they actually announced they were just going to end a life that. So I, I think you know. I think that we went through a hype cycle there, and we're definitely in the trough of disillusionment uh, kind of phase. I don't know if we're going to make it out of that trough or not. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. I I, I tend to be bullish, but I I think you uh, it could be really risky uh, to overestimate the timing. So um, you know, it remains to be seen like uh, how how quickly it's adopted. And I guess I I would add just one other point. Uh, I have seen some interesting new pilots, including one uh, by, I think, Adidas, um, where they're really trying to uh, use SMS as uh, that that sort of con- transactional platform and add the ability to do auto reorders and things like that uh, using SMS, which is uh, sort of interesting because that can be lower friction than some of these other platforms. Um so let's go to the next question, which is from Lauren Tonkin. And uh, Lauren writes, I'd love your thoughts on auto replenishment. Why have other retailers not adopted this ta- tactic broadly beyond Amazon and Target? Do auto replenishment models differ globally? What non-intuitive product categories do you think can benefit from an auto replenishment strategy? Thank you. Keep up the great work. Jason and Scott. Thanks. Another person with a great taste, I have to say. Um, and Jason, let me let me kind of ping this off of you so we make sure we're talking about the same thing. So uh, when I think about auto replenishment, um, it is there's kind of a nuance here. So Amazon, for example, has subscribe and save, which is a hard. I want to subscribe to this auto replenishment. To me, means the platform saying to you. Hey Jason, you ordered toothpaste thirty days ago. Is this a good time? You know, do you want to go ahead and order more? Is that kind of how you think about it, or do you lump them all together? No, I, I think about it exactly how you do. I think there's two tiers, okay. and implied in Lauren's question is when she says auto replenishment, I think she's actually initially talking about subscriptions because she references Amazon and Target, and you know, Target does support subscriptions, but not true auto replenishment. Um, and, and to your point, like, you know, I think the step beyond subscriptions is this uh, in, entirely implicit uh, uh, process where the stuff just shows up. Yeah. And uh, so, so two kind of background things to answer this question. Uh, and uh, number one, full disclosure, I'm on the board of a company here in Research Triangle Park that called Windows Circle. And their whole thing is applying data science and machine learning to transactional data of retailers to kind of find replenishable products. So, so I actually know a fair amount of this. Uh, and then I would also point uh, folks to uh, the excellent deep dive Jason led us on through machine learning. Uh, and this is a great way you know, they're, they're to, to leverage machine learning. Um, some of this is obvious, right? So dog food, any replenishable kind of a consumable product is going to have a certain period of time and it's done. Um, but other ones are harder to tell. So it's harder to tell the duration. Um, like even dog food, you know, I, you know, I may have a dog that only eats one cup versus Jason's dog eats two cups. Uh, we all know MacGyver loves his dog food. Uh, and, uh, and then also another good example is maybe batteries because, you know, maybe uh, person A has six kids and they just 
burn through batteries like crazy. Person B uh, you know, doesn't burn through batteries that much. And this is where machine learning is kind of interesting because it can look at that transactional data at a very personalized level and say, you know, this this customer is seems to be replenishing on this product on this level. Let's automate that for them. Or maybe even surfacing it up to that that top tier of subscribe and save. So I do think it is uh, very interesting. I think why are retailers not really kind of attacking it? I, I think when retailers list the things that are going to move the needle for them, they are stuck at like number one and two, which typically, and Jason, you're more of an expert on this, but whenever I talk to retailers, they're obsessed with replatforming. Uh, so they spend a lot of time on just like choosing the platforms and replatforming and, and kind of doing that kind of stuff. Um, and then they're spending a ton of time around omni-channel integrations and these kinds of things. And then, you know, like replenishment, subscribe and save is like number four and five personalization maybe is number three. So, so it, you know, my view is it just kind of like, is hard for your average top 200 retailer to get to this, to spend time on it. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Jason. Yeah, I, I, I do think one of the challenges is just the bandwidth challenge that, you know, in these big roadmaps, if, if it doesn't pencil out as the, you know, first or second most valuable initiative, it's just hard to get bandwidth to get to it. Um, but I do think there are some nuances. I, I think the majority of subscription programs at the moment are pretty brain dead and tend to not work very well. Um, so, you know, you, you think about a lot of these subscription services um, like a Blue Apron or a Dollar Shave Club, and after a while you get behind. You didn't cook all the food the Blue Apron sent you or you have an excess supply of razors and you get subscription fatigue and you turn it off. Um, and so we're, we're left in North America with this irony. There are all these subscription-based businesses, um, uh, Stitch Fix, Trunk Club, um, you know, that, that started out as a recurring subscription and, and they all have had to shift their model to not be automatic subscription, um, because customers in general just don't like receiving the products when they don't need them. And so just setting, sending stuff on a fixed schedule hasn't worked very well. Um, you know, I do think an exception to that rule is the prime pantry. Um, I think boxed is probably an exception to that rule in that regard, but what we're really like close to and just haven't seen enough good examples yet is the artificial intelligence based replenishment, which is I think more what, what Scott's talking about and interested in. And, you know, there, there certainly are some good examples of that. Um, we're doing a lot of work with Sephora, which has a huge data set and you can imagine, you know, everyone's use case for cosmetics is wildly different. And so it's not a matter of just figuring out that people need mascara on a monthly basis. It's a matter of figuring out, you know, the individual usage patterns, for a, for a particular consumer um, and and predictively shipping for that consumer's use case. And so I, I do think that's going to be successful and we're going to see more of that. And then I would also say that to me, the big the big picture here is instrumented auto replenishment. And, you know, and so this Amazon has a little bit of this in what they call their dash replenishment program. But your, you know, your Canon inkjet printer that automatically orders ink when it knows it's running low um, or the Brita water filter that orders a new filter cartridge when it knows you should change the cartridge. Um, those are the today examples, but you don't have to go too far in the future before I can virtually assure you that the your toilet paper holder is going to count how many squares of toilet paper you use and know when you need more toilet paper in your house. And, you know, you can imagine that Amazon Go technology that they're using in the store to see what products you put in the cart. You could imagine that same technology being in your kitchen to know when you're running low on milk. 
Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think in the not too distant future, uh, the Internet of Things will be the trigger for a lot of these auto replenishment orders. And, and uh, when that happens, um, we're projecting that about 40 percent of the SKUs in the center of a grocery store, um, you know, that people go shopping for today and drive trips and cause serendipitous discovery and all these other things are going to go away because about 40 percent of those goods, you're just going to have magically show up at your house when you need them. Yeah, and there's kind of a news item here. Um, just recently, Walmart filed a patent that would – it was kind of like dash button, but the products would order things themselves. So there's there's a lot of innovation going on around that area. It's going to be interesting to, to, to see that play out and see, you know, if consumers adopt that or not. It's kind of like creepy when the milk kind of self you know, knows it's empty and orders it for you. <laughs> I, I'm not really sure if, if uh, how folks are going to react to that. Uh, okay. Uh, next question is from Ben Cates. Uh, and Ben really wanted to just kind of talk about our point of view of off-price retail, um, both online and offline. Yeah. And that uh, it's a tricky topic right now because it's in North America, off-price retail is one of the few bright spots in brick-and-mortar retail. Um, so you look at the dollar stores, you look at TJ Maxx, um, and, and they're, you know, really one of the the few growth areas in brick and mortar retail, um, you know, obviously consumers are are getting more price sensitive and, and that's become a super popular format. And the challenge has been how to manifest that off price format online. Right. And you have sort of two problems um, when you get to these really, you know, inexpensive, low cost items like the things in a dollar store. um, the shipping becomes really challenging for e-commerce. So that that's a, you know, the logistics costs become a big impediment. Um, in Amazon parlance, you know, most of those items are, are crap items, items you can't realize a profit in e-commerce on. Um, and the even bigger problem is a big part of the shopping experience in these off-price stores is the treasure hunt. It's that you don't know what you're going to find when you walk into the TJ Maxx and you're, you're you know, hopefully going to find something that there's only one of that's a great deal. And it's really in, uh, cost inefficient to create a product detail page for that SKU you only have one of. And then it sells super quickly. Um, and it in many cases, it just makes more sense to put that coat in a store than it does to put it online. And so I, I would say at the moment that the, the best off-price retailers are really struggling to figure out what the digital model is. I mean, you know, the TJ Maxx's and the Nordstrom Rack all have e-commerce sites, but the assortment of product they sell on their e-commerce site um, is very different than the assortment they sell in the stores. And the percentage of their sales that are online are much lower than a traditional apparel retailer, for example. Yeah, I think I don't have a ton to add there. There's a, there's a chart, and maybe we could put it in the show notes that um, this kind of shows this disparity that that you, you know that, that Ben kind of talks about here. Where if you look at just kind of physical retail, the only things that are growing from a same store sales are the dollar stores and the the warehouse clubs. Uh, and um, it's ironic because those actually don't translate to online very well. No one has figured out. We've had boxed on the show. Uh, I kind of put brandless in this bucket. Amazon Pantry, um, you know, no one has figured out how do you bring that that wholesale club kind of an experience, kind of bulk products, and and you know, getting the unit volume 
unit cost down and, and by having you buy larger assortments and things, no one's figured out how to bring that online. Um, and at the same time, the, the guys that are really struggling offline are the, the non-off price retail. So, uh, if you're not a value oriented or kind of a convenience oriented player right now, that seems to be, uh, there's studies that show this. We don't have time to go into it, but there's this kind of bifurcation in the U.S. buyer market where, a pretty big segment loves value and they'll go to the TJ Maxx and they'll sort through every apparel item in there looking for a great deal. Um, so they have, you know, the kind of way I think about it is they're willing to spend a fair amount of time to save, save money and they like that hunt. Um, and then the other side is convenience oriented. So, so I, what I think is happening is the guys that are really struggling offline, you know, the ones we've reported on, the sports authorities, the Macy's, the Sears, the guys closing stores, they don't really have value and they also don't have convenience. So they, they're kind of in this no man land where consumer behaviors changed. And, and I, I think the off price guys have, have been very fortunate that they, they uh, are squarely in that value bucket. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's there's one outlier there, which we won't get into on this show, but uh, affordable luxury is is uh, one other bright spot, and that's mostly cosmetics in the form of Sephora and Ulta in North America. But the those guys are are killing it. Um, so if you need to make an investment right now, that might be a place to look. Uh, <laughs> But moving on, uh, Gareth Haynes uh, from the UK, from across the pond, uh, sent us a great question. Uh, Enjoying your podcast from the other side of the pond. I would be interested in your take on the recent, in the UK anyway, growth of products sold on Amazon by Chinese 3P merchants, which are presumably the manufacturers using FBA. Um, And Gareth says, I've noticed transformational changes in some product groups where new SKUs and brands have gained strong traction very quickly, propelled forward by a combination of aggressive pricing uh, and uh, uh, supported by AMS and FBA. Yeah, this is uh, this is very much in my wheelhouse, and um, this is huge. So this is a, a massive trend. Uh, Amazon. It, it's interesting because you think Alibaba would would solve this because all these guys are Alibaba's customers, but Alibaba is so focused on you know Chinese manufacturer selling to Chinese consumer. Um, they've kind of dropped the ball on this. They do have a platform called AliExpress. But uh, it really hasn't gotten traction in our market or Europe. It's very popular in, in a couple other areas where e-commerce is underrepresented, like Russia and whatnot. Um, so what Amazon has done is, you know, I would say two to three years ago, they realized there's demand. People like this product direct from China manufacturers. What they don't like is this stuff takes, you know, when it gets shipped from the Chinese manufacturer uh, on the quote unquote slow boat from China, it literally is a slow boat from China. It takes kind of four weeks to get here. If you've ever uh, bought anything from the marketplace wish, you've experienced this. I, I, I think that's a fun marketplace and they've got all kinds of, it's kind of like, it's the closest thing to a dollar store, if you will, kind of that, that has kind of nailed that. And, you know, it's a great company they're growing, but the, the downside is you order these things for three to five, six bucks, and they take six weeks to get here because they're coming from mainland China. So, so in a world where we're addicted to Prime, that feels like it takes eight thousand years. So, what Amazon cleverly did is they saw demand for this stuff on the platform, but it was being shipped directly. So, they have built a whole entire infrastructure called Dragon Boat that essentially uses predictive analytics and looks at these folks selling on the platform that are shipping direct and says to them, "Look." 
instead of doing this direct, we think your volume would increase this much if you did pallets. And they will actually then work with them to uh, get pallets on containers onto an Amazon boat. They've cut out all the middlemen. There used to be six middlemen in this exchange. So all direct right from Amazon. Amazon has part of Amazon China is all set up for this. Um, They get them into the U.S. in FBA, and then now they're prime eligible. Uh, And the same is true for the U.K. And this has been extremely disruptive, especially for non-branded kind of things. So, um, you know, uh, electronic accessories was the first category. Now we're seeing it in apparel. So, you know, the same factory that's making the Vera Wang wedding dress is now selling a wedding dress for, you know, $200 versus the the 20K kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, it's been hugely disruptive. And what's interesting is you, you start to see this trend now where, uh, let's see, what can I pick on? Um, I was buying some shorts the other day, and I bought a Columbia pair of shorts for like $80. So that was the name brand. And then Amazon Basics had a pair of shorts. So then Amazon has worked probably with a China factory to kind of say, here's what we want it to look like and the quality. And it was about half price, so it was $40. And then I could actually buy a comparable product direct from a uh, and you find these guys using AMS to your point, using a Chinese manufacturer I'd never heard of, and you know that one was twenty dollars. So what you start to see is this differentiated price, where branded is at X, Amazon Prime is half of X, and a Chinese seller is eighty to ninety percent of X. And I think what Amazon is saying is, let's give the consumers the trade off, and if they whatever they choose, they choose, and they they understand the the trade offs there, and we'll make it very transparent. Um, but, and so it's very interesting and it's extremely disruptive. No, I would totally agree. And I, I do think that three tier, um, model is going to become more common. I mean, you even think about like, you know, Gillette razor blades cost $7 each dollar shave gum club disrupted the market by, you know, selling blades at a dollar each. And now the Chinese manufacturer, the dollar was using is, is selling direct at 20 cents each and disrupting dollar shave club. Um, yeah. and you know, I, I think that is common, uh, uh, I will give uh, Scott Galloway credit, which I, I hate doing, but he he has a funny quote about how you know people have way overestimated 3D printers. We already have the world's greatest 3D printer. It's called China, um, and you know I think these marketplaces are really just sort of facilitating us using China as sort of a 3D printer that can you know really quickly manufacture these products and get them in the market. And I guess I would say the one cautionary tale is there have been two huge hits. In, in North America um, that were direct from Chinese factory products with no brands, right? And so that was two holidays ago. Um, we, we had all the, the hoverboards, the, um, the stabilized uh, skateboard stuff. Um, and, you know, those were all like designed by Chinese factories and sent over here. And they were, you know, uh, all, all sold direct from factory. And right now we're in the middle of this silly uh, fad with all the fidget spinners. And most of those are are direct from Chinese factories. And in both cases, they're electronic products with a battery, um, and we're having some scary um, consumer malfunctions. And so I do think there's there's a potential risk um, that that these, these products are going to get a bad rap for safety concerns, and therefore it's going to scare consumers away. And so I, you know, I, uh, I, I think uh, we, we have to make sure we steer clear of that, uh, you know, for this trend to continue. 
Yeah, and the um, kind of implicit in Gareth's question uh, and, and quickly is, what's a brand to do? So, so you're a brand or a retailer. You're in category X, and suddenly there's a Chinese seller. Um, and I think this is really this is the world going forward. And and to your at the top of the show, you talked about how how are you more agile? I think the answer is brands and retailers have to partner to be much more agile. Um, there's some things you can do around. You know, what's interesting is a lot of these things are coming out of the same factory. So they'll do a run for the brand and then they'll do a run of their own stuff. And so if I'm a brand, I think I would go back to my factory and negotiate that they're not allowed to do that in some way. You know, there's certain constraints that, that you could put on there, especially with your intellectual property. Um, so, so there's some stuff you can do there. But at the end of the day, there's so many of these factories that, you know, just shutting down the one, there's one next door kind of thing. Um, so I think it's innovation. So, you know, and, you know, that's what your brand has to kind of stand for. Just just kind of these lifestyle brands and things. Um those days, you know, are, are, are going to be hard to stay on top of if you're not doing something innovative around the fabric, the technology, all these kinds of things to differentiate your product as a brand. And that that treadmill, uh, a lot of brands I talk to you kind of say, ah, we've had private label in you know grocery or whatever for years, and it doesn't matter. I, I think this is way different than anything they've faced before, uh, and uh, it, it's a new world. And the only solution is to innovate. Absolutely. And I, I think it comes down to being close to your consumer. Um, if you're a brand that that can really stay close to your consumer and know them, you can innovate products that particularly meet their needs or fit their life. Um, and at best, the, the Chinese factories are going to be fast followers. And so I think in the new world, um, those those, you know, great innovations you come up with are going to have a shorter lifespan because – you know, you are you are going to have uh, the Chinese com, com, uh, competitors coming in and, and challenging your price point. So you you need to be ready to move on to the next product a little faster than we used to do. And uh, with that, I'm sorry to report that it has happened again. We've wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners time. Um, and I'm, I'm even sad in the report we didn't get to all the listener questions, so we're definitely going to have to do another one. Um, so if you have any thoughts about the questions we covered on this show, we'd certainly encourage you to hop on Facebook uh, and uh, let your thoughts be known. And if you have some other questions, we'd love you to leave those on Facebook as well, and we'll get them in the next episode. Uh, and if you did enjoy today's show, we would certainly appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. Yeah, thanks, everyone. We really appreciate the questions, and hopefully you've uh, enjoyed uh, the hot take on Amazon's quarterly earnings and the listener questions. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.